Boom! What is going on, people? Welcome to Taught Leaders, where we break down not taught what it takes to be successful in the 21st century with killer, dope-ass experts who know how to make this stuff fly. So I'm super excited today to have Rob Katz. Rob is the CEO and magic man over at Vail Resorts. What he has done with Vail Resorts people is off the charts. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But what Rob has done with that um, with that ski resort, I started there in 1989 when he was he was 21 too. He was 20. Yeah, he, he wasn't on the blip. He was still in school. He was killing it. I was being a bum. He was going to really good school. Wharton, right? Rob Wharton. Yeah, Wharton. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that tells you, right? Even though I say screw your degree in here, it worked out for him because <laughs> while he was getting his degree at Wharton and I was drinking and partying at Vail, our 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 worlds collided 20 years later and. What he's done with Vail is amazing. So we're super excited to have him. We're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. We're going to be talking about how the world has changed and how emotional intelligence and deliberate learning can help you get ahead in the 21st century. So without further ado, an old school word, Rob, welcome and thank you, my man. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting. It's been uh, actually first came out to Vail in 1990, and I was drinking and partying too. Uh, even though I was going to, even though I just graduated Wharton, um, and uh, yeah, just an amazing, amazing experience to be part of this company, and amazing to have uh, to be here with you doing this webinar. I'm thrilled. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Kiki. Good to have you. Good to have you, sister. Thank you. Good to be here. Happy to have Rob here. I'm really excited about this show. We've been doing a ton of research on you, and you've led an impressive career. So really excited. Yes, nice. yes. So, Rob, before we dig, so what we'd like to do here is we like to talk about how the world has changed, how the industrial age is over, whether people like it or not. I promise I won't make any Trump references. There are only so many. But uh, <laughs> how the industrial age is over, that the world we grew up in, that we straddle, has changed drastically, and what we were taught as kids and what we were taught to be successful has changed so much it's not working for a lot of people anymore. And if they want to get ahead and they want to move ahead, there are 13, well, I, I did 13 steps, not doubt about what it takes to be successful today. So before we kick off and get into emotional intelligence, where I really want to dive in, tell us a little bit about your thoughts and how things have changed and how you've attached those to your leadership and to Vail Resorts. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I look back over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, it feels like uh, there's been a huge, a pretty seismic shift in what leadership means. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, way back when in the 70s and 80s, you know, I think it was all about uh, uh, strategy, you know, people who could uh, use analytic skills, come up with, you know, focus, uh, uh, figure out what their priority should be for their company, um, and, and just go execute. And it was a little bit more of a command and control, I think, approach uh, to how people ran companies, what it meant to have a boss. Uh, and I think actually the, uh, the, the last 20, 30 years, I think there's been a, a, a sea change where all of a sudden it's about not how can I tell people what to do, but how can I get them to buy in to what I want them to do. And that requires, right, making a connection. And so I think, you know, the, the importance of having a connection uh, with your guests, with your employees, with your partners has gone up dramatically. And I think that's been only augmented by the fact that uh, everything is so transparent now. So 30 years ago, things that went on in a particular company, uh, you know, would, would largely stay in that company. But today, with social media, Facebook, and Twitter, and Snapchat, and all the rest, you know, anything that happens anywhere, you know, makes it out onto the internet. And so you have to lead in a way where you're comfortable that anything you do and say, right, is fully, you know, okay, really, with, with the world at large and with your consumers in your communities. And so I think that has shifted uh, in a big way, right, what it means to be a leader right now uh, and, and be able to successfully navigate kind of this, you know, right, highly, uh, you know, quick moving, fast moving, uh, you know, connected world. Visible world, connected visible world, right? Is it yep. visible to you think? Yeah. Absolutely. So I love, I love what you said and I love your observation how leadership has changed. One of the things I'm a huge fan of is really giving people hows to, right? So how does a leader, whether it's at your level, at a billion dollar corporation, or as, as you know, a, a guy of one or two just starting out as an entrepreneur, how do they execute that? How does the execution of that engagement 
and that connectivity. How do you? How does that? How is it changing? How do you connect with that? Give them some how tos. What should they do? Yeah, I think it's in my mind. There's really two kind of you know kind of critical things that leaders have to do. One is they really have to uh, uh, be willing to prioritize, right? So they really gotta you know I think one of the challenges in today's world is that there are so many choices, right? That you could do so many things. There's so many technologies available, and so sometimes that can be overwhelming for a lot of leaders. You've got to really sit back and say, okay, what's the most important thing? that I need to do to execute on my business. And we talk a lot about, uh, right out of Jim Collins' you know, book around being core, right? What is your core, right, to your business? And I would say, yeah, that you, as a business, you have to know who you are, what you represent to your guests, what can you be the best in the world at, all of those things. So that's critical, and that's about strategy. The second piece, though, that I think we put a lot of you know, emphasis on here at Bell Resorts is who are you at your core? Right, that if you want to be a successful leader with all of this, uh, you know, again, this transparency and all the different moving dynamics, it's like you've got to know your own core. And so what I would tell any leader at any level is spend some time to understand who you are. Right? What are the things you're really good at? What are the things maybe you have challenges around? Um, and be okay talking about those. Be okay admitting those. That's Right, it, it starts, you can't lead other people and get them to follow you if you don't know who you are to begin with. So that is, that is, that is two things I love what you hit on. One, we talk about in chapter two, right, brand you. But before you can brand you, and I make people go through this process, and it was great hearing you say some of the things you said, is I forced to ask them some questions, right? Who are you? What are you great at? One of the things I talk about in that is what I call the Midas touch. Right? And what I say to people is, okay, when you come into an organization and you touch it, what do you touch that turns to gold? Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how many people really don't know that, right? They're really not sure, or they think they turn it to gold, but they actually turn it to lead, right? They're, they're unaware. And I think that's where we want to take this, is this idea of self-awareness and this idea of emotional intelligence in assessing who you are and how good you are at something, or let's call it what your Midas touch is. Talk to us a little bit about emotional intelligence, how you got plugged into it, and how you think it affects things. Yeah, and I, I think it's a great point, this Midas touch. But the interesting thing is, right, if you're not sure, right, one of the things about having a Midas touch, is, as you say, is that you're turning it into gold. Uh, you know, a lot of leaders don't even know whether they're turning something into gold or lead because they just kind of plow forward without taking the time to get feedback, right, and actually make sure. And so, you know, there's the Midas touch around business strategy, but then the Midas touch around leading people, the only way to know whether you've got the Midas touch is what the other people think. And a lot of leaders move forward without ever getting any feedback, asking for true critical feedback, and then you really are not creating a connection. So to me, the emotional intelligence piece, in my mind, really is about I'm aware of who I am, and then I'm also aware of who you are, and I'm listening to you, and then I am looking for ways to make a connection. And if I'm the leader of my team, then I've got to meet each person on my team where they are. The team should not, you know, they may want to align with the leader, of course, on strategies and things like that. But if you're a leader, everyone on your team is going to be different. They're going to have a different personality profile. Different things are going to motivate them. It's the same thing as a coach of a football team or a baseball team, if you're a coach, you've got to know how to get the best performance out of each player, right? You can't just use one approach with every single player on your team. How do you unlock, right, the potential of each person? And the only way to know that is you've got to be listening, right? And I've got to know how I show up and my impact on people, and I've got to know how they're reacting to me. And that takes time. And I think that's something that a lot of leaders just run right over. You know, are you familiar with Jahari's window? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what of what you're referencing here is Jahari's window's blind spot, right? Mm -hmm. Too many executives. Well, everybody, everybody has the blind spot. I feel, though, for whatever particular reason, as people move up the chain and get larger spans of influence and control, whether it be formal or informal, they have this sense that they shouldn't have a weakness or they can't show a weakness. Or, for whatever particular reason, they were promoted and pushed along for these strengths, and no one called them out on those weaknesses, and they're getting magnified, and so they're completely blind to them. They have no idea. How do you propose people open up to this idea of their blind spot, not knowing a certain part of themselves that everybody else knows about them? 
Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest myths, right, which is that um, it is a little bit, you know, uh, I tell people, uh, you know, if you were walking around the office and you had, you know, were eating lunch and had mustard on your face, would you rather people tell you that you have mustard on your face or would you rather just walk around the office and everybody kind of privately goes, you know, says, ha ha, he's got mustard on his face. It's like, you know what, a real friend, a real colleague comes over to you, they know it's going to make you feel bad, but they say, hey, dude, you've got mustard on your face. And you know what? That's the same thing in leadership. And so the truth is, is that, yeah, you, everyone's got these weaknesses. And you know what? The people who will see them most are the people who report to you, the people who you're trying to lead, right? The people next to you. They're going to know it right away. And so as a leader, yes, your priority has to be to use every method possible to get their feedback. And what happens is now, the other side of it is, sometimes people feel like, well, you know, I don't agree with this person's feedback, and I so th and this other person's got you know has these negative things to say about me, but they really don't know me, and they really don't understand me, and that's not the truth. But in the end, what people think matters, even if you don't believe it. You should then think to yourself, well, why do I have people reporting to me who think this about me when it's not true? Maybe I still need to adjust my behavior so that they don't think that about me anymore. Like the truth of the feedback you know, is actually not as important as how people are really reacting. If you want to get the best performance out of your folks, right, you need to know what they think. I really like that. That is really, really good. So when did you stumble or find this idea of emotional intelligence? When did it happen for you? And how has it changed things most for you, your leadership style, the organization, whatever? So, um, you know, I was working in New York, uh, you know, in the finance industry uh, from about when I graduated college in 1988. And, um, and you know, I'd say was, was I enjoyed a lot of it and I had tremendous uh, success, at, you know, on a lot of fronts. Um, but I was not having this, the feeling that I was really making connections to people. I mean, you know, it, on Wall Street, you know, the old adage of if you want a friend, buy a dog. Right is is a little you know there's a lot of truth to that right and so it's not you know relationships is not necessarily the priority there as it is in corporate America and so I started to think about well maybe I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and then uh, was kind of my wife and I we had two young kids two and one years old and we were thinking about whether we don't ever want to leave and then 9/11 happened when I was in New York City and that was shake you. Yeah, mo both my wife and I felt like, you know, if we were ever looking for a sign that it was time to make this move that we had talked about, we should do it. And so actually, uh, literally uh, wound up coming out and starting to look around different places uh, where we thought we could raise our family. Came out to Boulder in March of 2002 um, and just loved it. And, uh, across the mountains. Sorry? Go Buffalo. Buffalo. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and no, and, and we just loved it. I mean, we, you know, obviously I had a connection with Vail, so I loved the mountains, loved the outdoors. I also loved how progressive, right, the town was and the culture was. It was like, it seemed like everybody was learning something new, doing something new, trying something different. Uh, and so we wound up moving here. When we moved here, um, I actually let my, I was a consultant for my old company, but I was not working full time. So I had some time in my hand, uh, on my hands. Wound up spending a little more time being a dad and a and a husband than I had in New York, and I also decided to like figure out okay what else is out there in Boulder. And Boulder's got a lot of cool and a lot of weird things. Yes. And so I kind of explored all of them. And one of the things I did was this leadership training, and it was a totally new model that I had not really come across. And it was about what we're talking about: connection. How do you connect to other people authentically? How do you provide feedback? And I was sitting around, we, I had a team that, you know, that, that they put together, I didn't know anyone in the room, and they started to do a feedback exercise where they wanted people in the circle to give feedback to other people. And I realized that I didn't want to give feedback to other people, even though I didn't know them, even though I'd never met them, even though I didn't work with them. So there was no risk to me in giving really candid, thoughtful feedback to these people, but I wouldn't. And I realized that, no, this issue was about me, right? How can I show up in a more authentic way? And so that launched this, yeah, basically that was like in 2002, 2003. And then over the next couple of years, I spent a ton of time on this. So by the time I became CEO of Vail Resorts in 2006, this for me, I already saw as a critical part of how you lead. 
Wow, I love that story. So, so I'm going to lean in a little. How did that change your relationship with your family, with your friends, and how did it change your leadership style and engagement with other folks, with other folks in the business world? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was hugely helpful um, on the family side uh, and on the friends side. I think it was um, you know it, it uh, you know it's it's about right because you know what, what's what happens a lot in business and sometimes happens at home too is people get so stuck on being right. Yes, right? I'm guilty. That I'm right. I you know I I've got the right answer. No one else has the right answer. And so and I you know I am probably yeah I have that issue in spades. And so this was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Maybe the goal was not to be right, but the goal was to connect to your team, right? That if you wanted to get the most out of your team, yeah, you needed to know what the right answer was, but it was just as important to get them to buy into it and believe it. Now, by the way, at least, you know, with my wife, yeah, I also had the same issue around, you know, we'd get into a debate and I'd always be like, well, I'm right. And then I was. It did allow me to shift a little bit to say, well, you know what? Actually, maybe being right is not making me happy. <laughs> maybe being connected might be a little bit better than being right. So it actually dovetailed, and I'd say a lot of the work that we do here at Bell Resorts, um, I've gotten tons of feedback from uh, people who work here saying, you know what? Boy, this has really helped me at work, but it's also helped me at home, and it has really changed how I deal with, you know, all of the different relationships that I have in my life. That's so a big deal. How, yeah. How did you get people in at Vail Resorts to buy in? And then were there people who just didn't buy in and, and basically had to leave? I don't want you to violate HR, but you know what I'm saying? Like, were you like, look, there's some people bought in and some didn't. Tell us a little bit about that story. How did you get them to buy in? And did, were there some people who just fought it? Yeah, I would say, we, you know, I, when I first got here, yes, everyone fought it. <laughs> because not, <laughs> not for a bad reason, but because it's uncomfortable and new and different. And everybody reacts to that kind of change, you know, I think, so did I, by the way, right? It takes time. So we started really slowly, and I also started with my direct report team, so the other executives in the company. And actually, for the first two to three years, I only focused on my executive report team because the truth is, and this is the other thing about leadership, you know what? If I went out with all these big proclamations to everyone in the company um, and, uh, and my team was not bought in, then it was going to go nowhere because if all these folks went to my direct reports and said, oh, we heard this cool thing from Rob, and my direct report was like, oh, that's a bunch of BS, well, then you're done. So you've got to get the people around you to buy into the culture. And so that's, that's really how we started, and I'd say it, there's a little bit of a flywheel that takes place where you build that engagement, and slowly but surely it starts to move out. And initially people are like, there's only a few people that – are bought into this kind of crazy thing. But then all of a sudden, five years later, there's only a few people who are not bought in. And when that happens, those few people that are not bought in, actually a lot of them say to themselves, oh, you know what, maybe I should buy in. And then other people, yeah, may decide this isn't the right company for them. And, and honestly, I don't think we're not trying to make Bell Resorts the right company for everyone. It can't, it's, it's not gonna be successful. It goes back to what you were saying. Who are you? Right? What is your leadership brand? What's your personal brand? It can't be to be everything to everybody. No, it can't. So are you, are you a big fan of John Cotter? Yeah. I'm sorry. Are you a big fan of John Cotter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. As you were describing the process you went through, it sounds almost as if Cotter was in your ear because you built the small group of people that you had to get on first because you knew there was going to be tremendous resistance. You allowed it to take years Right, you built a sense of urgency with that small group. I mean, that that was excellent. I mean, that story in itself is a change management story, not just an EI story. I mean, that's a change management story. That was fantastic, Rob. Thank you. No, absolutely. So, so let's let's bring this down to a little bit back. I want to circle a little bit back to this idea of emotional intelligence and um, um, the in individuals helping themselves. Right. So, in chapter thirteen, we talk about this idea of deliberate learning. And what we talk about is the idea that says, look. It's one thing to learn, and for most of our lives, we, we learn, this is really sad to say, by the way, less than, well, less than, the majority of the population leads less than one book a year, which is sad, right? right. Then, yeah. the majority of people, 80% of their learning happened at, at school 
or in some sort of company organized you know training says you're going to learn this and so they go through life and if they do learn it all it's it's sort of haphazard they just kind of go oh I learned that we argue or I argue and not taught that you have to deliberately learn you have to sit down and say to yourself I don't know this and if I want to achieve this role or I want to get in this position or I want to be successful here I need to know this and you build a deliberate learning path or strategy so that you can acquire the knowledge you need to move ahead how would you attach that to emotional intelligence and what would you say to people if you told them look how would you go about building your own deliberate learning strategy yeah I think I by the way I think that is I, I would say exactly the same thing I think that that part of your book is you know it's, it's maybe the most powerful most important so when I interview people for roles on my team or if I'm interviewing people even deeper in the organization I, you know one of the things that I'm trying to assess is are they a lifelong learner right are you constantly trying to learn because the truth and I'd say for two reasons right one the world around you is changing constantly right so if you're not up for changing and if you're not up for integrating new information you're going to be left behind you know and I'd say obviously over the last you know decade 15 years uh, you know that has accelerated with technology and so you've got to constantly be willing to take in new information so I, I think that is I mean as a leader you know without that I think you are going to be left behind for sure uh, so I think it's critical. The other piece, though, is people. So if you're leading people and trying to motivate people and stay connected with people, the people you have, they're always changing. They're not the same every day. They don't show up the same. Some days they come in and they're in a great mood. might have something to do with the company or you. It might have something to do with their family or it might have something to do with a baseball game that they played in the night before that they lost or who knows what. You've <laughs> got to know, right? And, and, and by the way, the people on your team are always learning new things, they're getting better, or maybe they're slipping back. You've got to be constantly taking in new information. We talk a lot about it as agility, right? Yes. Leadership ability, that you are constantly moving and taking in new information and shifting. And I think it is, it is the biggest pitfall, this deliberate learning piece you're talking about, people who don't do it, it is the number one downfall I see in folks who somehow don't keep up with where a company or where their life could go. Yeah, you know, it's funny you said, and I told you we're going to take, every much we pivot somewhere we weren't expecting to, but it's interesting what you just said about people don't keep up. You know, we hear a lot about this idea of, in, in, let me start over, you just turned 50, for those of you who aren't here, we talked about it, Rob's a year older than me, he just turned 50, I'm turning 49 in two weeks, so we're a year apart, and we're getting to that stage where we can't say we're young anymore, we can't say we're old, but we definitely fall into the whole um, FSLA or whatever that is, you know, we're, we're past a certain demographic, you can't just fire us, right? <laughs> because we're old people, right? We, <laughs> I, mean, I can't fire myself, but I guess you can't fire you, but you got a boy, but you get my point, right? And you hear people talk often about this idea of age discrimination. And I have argued, especially today, that age discrimination isn't age discrimination, it's the fact that most older people have refused to keep up. And so they're out of touch, which then makes them appear, appear incapable or not be able to compete as well against younger people. And they don't recognize that actually much of this idea of aging and, and feeling discriminated is your inability to stay current, to stay forward and be agile. Would you agree with that or not? Putting well, I would say I think it's – no, no. I, I think that I, what I would tell you is that I have seen people who uh, struggle to learn – um, who are young or old in, in you know their age and and I have seen people that are outstanding learners young and old as well now what I would say is this where I think the age thing comes in is not really your age but the number of years where you've been doing the same thing in a row right so obviously when you're 23 you don't have as many years to do that if you go too long but this by the way this could be a 30 or 35 if you've spent 15 years doing exactly the same thing over and over again then you know what you may be old from the standpoint of not you know uh, not current right not looking at new trends and I think that that is in my mind and it and you're right any age as long as you're constantly taking in new information it's it's important to change right just get out there and try something new do something different um, even if you you don't know whether it's going to be successful but just the trying uh, getting out of your habit. Uh, eating new things, changing your office, right? You know, doing new exercise, all of it. 
it's by the way, you know, it's like cross right cross training, yep. right? So if you train only for one thing all the time, right, you're going to lose your ability to actually have full agility in whatever sport you're doing, and it's the same thing at work. Rob, you're killing it. You're just making my book look like the best book of all time because you hit change. It is the best book of all time. <laughs> you just talked about change, which we'll get to, but you also just referenced chapter nine, experience, experience versus expertise. And in this chapter, what I talk about is the idea that people walk around saying, I've got 20 years experience. I've got 30 years experience. I've got all this experience, but yet could have been doing the same thing over and over and really haven't leveraged the expertise part. Experience only counts time, right? One year, five years, 10 years, 15. I can't control that. I can't accelerate or decelerate the experience that I get. What I can affect, though, is the level of expertise that I acquire within that time frame. And I think a lot of people lose sight of, and as, as you've talked about this idea that everything can be seen now and the internet is changing everything, we're moving away from the teleconomy like where I give you my resume, or I tell you what I what I can do to the show me economy, where it's like don't just tell me. I want you to show me. Why don't I can't I read anything about how you attack an accounting problem on LinkedIn? Why can't I see a video somewhere of how you leave? How come I can't see what you do? And that requires an expertise to be really good, right? And I think that's something people are missing and they get stuck in. There you go, go thoughts on that? Yeah, I know. I agree with that 100%. I think that the um, – I, I do think I would say this, though. I also think because I also get there are some people who are just kind of coming out of school who may not also appreciate that the, there is an importance to experience, right? There is an importance to mastering, right? Sometimes if you if, – because when you show up at work, right, there's two things that you've got to be doing. One is there's the tactical, technical parts of your job. Um, and then there is the leadership parts, the innovation parts, you know, some of the strategy parts. And the, the truth is, is that the tactical, technical parts, if you can't do that well, it actually makes it hard to do the other piece. Yes. And so where the experience helps is that actually, no, you know, by the way, even me coming in as CEO, I felt like for the first couple of years, like, it was hard. Like, that there were new things that I was learning and new things I had to do for the first time. And that takes a lot of energy. You know, my kids are now uh, uh, 17 and 18. And so I remember a couple of years ago when they first started to drive. And, you know, you watch a kid who's first starting to drive, and it takes them a lot of energy and effort to just do very basic things. And that's the same thing when you're at work. So if you're taking a new job, a new position, if you're, you know, it's good to build, right, that mastery of some of the technical aspects. So, like, just like when you're mountain biking or skiing, right, you're yeah. out there on the hill. You know, you see people like, you know, once you can get the technical parts right, you can do all kinds of things, but you got to master the basics. Yes. On the other hand, and then on the other hand, though, you're right, so, and then there's like a fork in the road. Some people, you know, as they're building that technical expertise, right, they never actually then make a different decision to turn and take that deliberate learning and go do other stuff. And then they just stay in that same track. So you kind of need that, and it is that whole what got you here won't get you there, right? That that concept, and what got you here is that technical mastery. It's important, yep. but it won't get you to that next spot. And so you've got to be willing to take a little bit of a leap of faith that you can give up a little bit of that relying on technical mastery and actually head into this whole other arena of connection, leadership, strategy. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I mean, one of the examples I use is, I think you're a good example, right? You, your level of experience is marked in time as a CEO is far shorter than many other CEOs, but you are a better CEO than many other CEOs, right? Who have more experience. So why is that? Well, it's things like emotional intelligence. That brings a level of expertise to the role that others don't have. You know, I like to say that it's the, it's the experts who actually change the direction of the road. It's those with experience who maintain it. We have two doctors with 30 years experience one you can go to is going to do a great job, et cetera, and you're going to be happy with them. But the other one, he or she has actually invented a new stitch for what you know for for the surgery. They've invented a new tool. They have a level of expertise that's higher, even though they have the same level of experience. And it's really getting people to understand their ability to own and drive their development by separating the timing with the knowledge. Yeah, I agree with that, and I and I, I do think it's it is a 
And I also think that sometimes people think, like that example you just gave, that if I'm a doctor and I've got good experience and I can take care of my patients, that sometimes people think, well, if I haven't invented like a cure for cancer, I'm not innovative. You know, if I haven't invented Facebook or if I haven't invented, right, the iPhone or if I haven't invented, you know, if I haven't come up with the idea for Airbnb, then, you know, but it's actually, right, we talk about this at our company all the time, this reimagine, right, that we want to reimagine the mountain resort experience. And I think what we talk about is, hey, you know, you can reimagine very small things in your own world that can be, right, quite innovative. And actually, it's that practice. Yes, there. Some people, right? Yeah, some people will invent something that'll change the world. But actually, most of those folks, right? It, they've been at it for years, trying new things and testing yes. new things. It's yes. yeah, like this webinar, right? What you're doing with your book and how you're selling it, right? It's like no, I'm trying something new. I'm testing something new. And you know what? This will be successful. But you know what? The fact that you're in that mode of testing and trying new things. Well, by the way, when that big idea shows up, you'll be ready for it and be able to run after it. But if you're never practicing, you can't be like, oh, the only thing I want to do is invent something that's going to be a $10 billion idea. Yes. You'll never get there. You'll be chasing your tail forever. Great point. And yeah. I love that innovation piece. I'm almost going to call that personal innovation, right? How can I innovate on what it is I do today, right? Yeah. You talked about when you ask, when you interview people on your team, you ask them, or you look for lifelong learners. One of the things I like to do when I interview people is I ask them, can you share with me a process, a tool, or something you created? to make your job easier outside of what the company gave you, right? Yeah. Because the company's going to give you stuff, but if you're really into your job, you're going to see personal areas of efficiency no matter what it is you do. And if you're not willing to go out and create something, oh, I created a new way to, to prioritize things, or I created a new folder or a new scoring system, then it, it, I argue I, I don't trust that you really own your job. You just sort of do what you're told to do, right? No, and, yeah, and I think actually, and, and you can probably appreciate this too, which is, so we, you know, Vail Resorts now has, I think it's 33,000 employees, uh, you know, across, right, all of our resorts, 14, 15 resorts. Um, so I travel, I'm at each of our resorts, you know, many times a year doing in meetings with the people who work there at all different levels. And what I would say is a lot of times I get ideas. People give me ideas about what they want to do. And sometimes it's, yeah, I'll get a ski instructor who says, you know what, I've got an idea about how to completely change the entire, you know, restaurant experience. And it could be a good idea, but one of the things I always tell people is, actually, you know, if, if I, I will listen more closely to someone who's giving me a new idea about what they're already an expert at. Because sometimes people say, hey, well, I'm a guest, I know everything about everything. It's like, no, no, no. Like, so if I, like, if I talk to a lift ops, you know, guy or gal, like, and I'm hearing about new ways that we can actually get load people on lifts and safety issues. If I'm talking to our scanners or ski instructors about the lesson, it's like all of a sudden that's where you are most likely to have the big idea, yes. right? It's not your, your I mean, it, it, is it possible there's a great idea out there, you know, for something that you don't work in? Yeah, but guess what? What's right around you at your workspace, at your desk or on the mountain, yes. that's where you're, you could probably have the biggest breakthrough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to turn a little. You talked about change, which is also a chapter in the book, change. And one of the things we talk in the book is change deniers, change accept, um, acceptors, and then change creators. And I argue that if you're a, cha a change resistor, you're done. You can't resist change anymore. Back in the day, change resistors were embraced, right? It was like, hey, you're not rocking the boat. You're keeping steady Eddie. We don't have to change that fast. Let someone else change and screw up, and then we'll follow. Those days don't exist anymore. You're either a change acceptor and you accept it and then you support the change but if you really want to make a difference if you really want to plow ahead in a career you got to be a change creator tell me about your thoughts on that and how you incorporate change creation at Vail well I think in the end for for people or for companies right either you know either you're going to be changing faster than the rate of change around you or slower than the rate of change around you and if you're changing slower than the rate of change around you then you are going to fall behind and yeah, you're gonna your your business you know will fail. You will you know I think as a as as a person you may lose relationships. You may not keep up you know keeping up with your kids, keeping up with your friends, keeping. I mean it's hard. It's not easy to do, but you've got to realize yes that this is a a fact of life, right? It's a and and I think evolution right is you've got to evolve the way the environment around you evolves, and 
I would say that, and I, and I think some people, you know, there's a sense, oh, well, I'm just going to stay exactly the same as everything around me, and I'll <laughs> change just enough to change with what's going on around me. But you know what? That's like an impossibility, right? The truth is you've got to be trying to be out. We, ca we talk about it as out front. You've got to try and be out front, right, of what's going on around you, and if you're trying your very best, maybe you'll keep up. But if you're thinking in your head, well, I'm kind of sitting here staying stable, chances are you're falling behind. And, and you know, I think it's, it is when you use the word deny, I think it's a great phrase and it's the right phrase because you're denying people who don't change with what's going on around them usually are denying that the change is even happening in the first place. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it is a, you know, and I, I, you know, I've seen that as a parent. You know, my kids watching them grow up from, you know, babies to now being almost off to college, it's like, I've got to keep up with that. And it's not easy. And my parenting approach has to change. It's different when they were five, when they were 10, when they were 15, now 18, they'll be in college. I got to keep shifting. You know, if I still treat them like, you know, where they were 10 years ago, right, I'm not going to be a good parent. And they're, they're gonna not going to listen. They're going to throw the teddy bear back at you. They're going to throw the teddy bear back at you. I don't need a teddy bear. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Well, look, I, I think you absolutely, you live the concept of change, right? right? So let's talk a little bit this idea of change at Vail Resorts and how you've embraced it. So to give our listeners a little insight, you basically took Vail, which is my favorite mountain, how I moved out here. We'll have lunch with these and I'll explain how one guy at a party in Massachusetts who was 15 years older than me, who I couldn't tell you who he is, changed my life forever. And that's how I ended up in Vail. But um, I mean, you, you have embraced change like nobody's business. From Epic Mix to the to the purchase and, and, and um, acquisition of all of these different mountains to the um, the season pass, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Has change always being ahead of change? Has it always been who you are? And how have you been able to drive that culture of change throughout Vail Resorts? Yeah, so I would say you know, and, it, and you said it earlier, and I really agree with you. It's like innovation. Everyone wants to be innovative, right? So, like, I mean, you know. If you you know that's like every company, every person, everybody, right? It is kind of like the the highest order of you know what you can be, be an innovator. But to be an innovator, in our view, you've got to innovate yourself, which is what you said earlier. And I think I think actually my my own you know kind of lean into innovation. What came after I did that personal kind of leadership and development work in Boulder when I moved here? So I think before that I wasn't really in that mode because why? Well, the issue with innovation and the reason why, you know, how come everyone isn't innovative? It's because people are afraid to fail, right? And you're afraid of the negative feedback that your new idea or new concept is going to, you know, create. And so what happens is, is that people say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I've got this new idea, but I'm, I'm afraid, I'm embarrassed, uh, I don't want to get, you know, critiqued. Well, if you build the skill set of being okay with feedback, right, about who you, who you are, if you're okay that you have weaknesses and therefore, and you're happy to talk about them with other people, if you're okay that, you know, people can, can lob in their, their, their criticisms of you and you, you're okay, you can stand on your own two feet with that, well then all of a sudden when you have your new idea that you want to take either to your team or to the public, yeah, now all of a sudden you're kind of ready and you have the confidence to be able to put these ideas out into the world. And I actually see that folks who struggle the most with this are people who are afraid to fail, afraid of feedback. You know, it's kind of like that, that and it's very personal. And so to me, being innovative and, and being a change agent is about being uh, okay with the fact that not everything is gonna go well and not everything you do will be, will be, by the way, and this has been a thing with, and you know this as well as anyone, a lot of things our company has done uh, have been successful, some of them haven't, and by the way, even some of the things that have been successful, a lot of people don't like, right? So there's a lot of criticism about things, even the ones that went well. The Epic Pass, which has been incredibly successful, a lot of people have critiqued the Epic Pass for a lot of reasons. You have to be okay with that while still hearing the criticism. Yeah. Like you can't shut it all off. And I think that's the, I do feel like that is the, that's what gets in the way, and I think at Vail Resorts, I think because we've married trying to be innovative in the company and innovative in leadership and personal development, I think that's why it's worked. Interesting, very interesting. Where do you where do you see where do you see it's having the greatest impact 
on Vail. So obviously there's a lot of different areas, but if you had to boil it down, where do you think it's had the greatest impact? I think I think the culture here. You know, I think the um, you know I think there's a a unique culture where uh, one I think our whole company has some of the most passionate people uh, that I have seen in any company anywhere, right? I think people have such a passion for the mountain, for their communities, for the sport, um, and so I think we start with that. I think we've got a highly engaged, um, a very bright workforce, uh, 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 people who have chosen, including me, including you, right, who have chosen to be a part of this industry for reasons that are very personal. You know, we talk about coming to Vail Resorts, allows you to align who you are with what you do. Um, and that's a pretty powerful statement. You know, being a skier, a rider, a mountain person, is, it's a very big identity piece. And I think what we've done um, is help to start moving, right, so that people see that they're not just aligned with the sport, but aligned with the company or with all of the people who work here. That the passion that they have for the outdoors can also be directed towards leadership development and helping you know their people and showing up better and all of those pieces. I also think we're we're on a journey, right? It is we are not done. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> You're right, never done, right? You're never done. But I would say, right? I think one of the, the our next tricks, one of our most important opportunities, is to take a lot of this work down to our seasonal, you know, workforce, which is of course the biggest part of our company, but is also a bit of a trick because they're only here four months out of the year. And so it's not the same when somebody's only working for you four months versus somebody who's working 12 months. Mm -hmm. But I actually think there's a huge opportunity, big, for us. I mean, if our company right, could take a lot of this work and have it permeate throughout our entire seasonal population, even somebody who's coming to be a lift operator for the first time, right, this would, this would I think, it's a change the world type of opportunity. You know, you know, it's interesting. And by the way, everybody, for the record, I, I say it all the time, but if you don't know, I'm a part-time ski instructor for Vail. I've been doing it for... 10, 11, 12 years, I teach 14 days a year, if I get it done, if not, I get yelled at for not making my number, but, um, <laughs> but uh, so, so that's what Rob refers to when he says, I understand, I, I love Vail, been skiing Vail, it's brought me to Colorado, uh, skied it forever, and then did that, but yada yada, so, all right, so I'm going to put your spot on a little here, okay, yeah. um, we are growing, and we grabbed Stowe, and we bought Whistle, which I'm a huge fan, I'm going this summer, by the way, to ski in in Momentum Camp. Don't do anything to mess up Momentum Camp, by the way. Don't keep their lease. Keep them going. I love that place. Don't mess it up. Please. John Smart's the greatest guy. If you don't know who he is, you'll know soon enough. But anyways, <laughs> I digress. Um, but there is a, a, a group of people, so I'm going to really push on here about the idea of emotional intelligence at the corporate level, not just the individual level. There are a lot of people who feel that Vail Resorts is too corporate, growing too fast, has lost touch with the, the local scene, have lost touch with the traditional um, um, you know, skiing mentality. And, and how, how do we address them? How do you address that? Do you feel it's like, look, it's not for everybody, I can't worry about them? Or is there a line? How do you how do you use um, EI to attack attack that? Yeah, I think it's I think it comes down I think it comes down to personal um, uh, connection. And so I'd say that you know one of the things that we talk a lot about is um, we have to empower right the people who are at each resort right to actually have the authority to drive change, resolve issues, work with the local communities, um, and we have to at you know corporate so to speak provide the support, financial support, um, long-term planning, consistency, that these folks who are in each of our communities can actually have the right engagement. And I, I would say there's a little bit, um, I think there's, there's some truth, right, to the, the, the point that Vail Resorts is maybe different than a, than a small local ski area, um, and because we're a bigger company. And I also think there's a little bit of a myth that goes along with that. There, a lot of times people think, oh, well, the folks who work at corporate, where I am or whatever, right, we don't really know skiing, but of course all of us are lifelong passionate skiers, everyone who works here. So many of us, right, it's, it's, we, we've chosen to be at this company because we love the sport. But I would say the truth is, yeah, of course, there are things about our company that are different from a local, maybe family-owned ski resort. Um, and now there are good things about it, it's good things. We typically provide much more consistency Right, we can fund much more change. Weather, right? So a lot of small ski areas 
when the weather, they have a bad season or two bad seasons, look at Tahoe, you know, from 2013 to 2015, three awful seasons. We were able, we didn't have any layoffs or cutbacks. We were able to essentially continue to support both our employees and with capital and new improvements and maintenance and all that, where other ski resorts struggled to do that. The other side of it, though, is, yeah, I mean, some people feel like, you know what, I, I knew the, the, the guy or gal who started this resort, or I knew the owner, and, and now I don't know the owner. And that's true. And I would say in travel, in business in general, yes, there, you know, in, if I looked at travel, so there is, yes, there's always going to be an amazing bed and breakfast, a small inn that is going to be super cool. And honestly, I, I travel. I love going there, too. Uh, and actually, as a skier, I go to other resorts, too, and that we don't own or operate. And you know what? Like, yeah, I love the terrain, and I love the experience. They freak out when you get there. They're like, oh, what is he doing? Yeah, I usually, uh, <laughs> I'm usually more incognito. Yeah, but I, you know what? Jackson Hole, Sto uh, you know, Stowe before we bought it. Uh, Snowbird, <laughs> Aspen, all these resorts, they have, I mean, you know, Mammoth, Squaw, I mean, they all have great skiing. I mean, now, I think we do a better job, though, of providing a more consistent experience. Um, but, yes, I, so I think in the end, we won't be able to satisfy everyone, but that doesn't mean that we still are not taking that feedback and constantly looking to do better. So the idea of a corporate EI as well, right? Can the corporation accept... Absolutely negative feedback can they accept the engagement because it's all out there like I, I'm with you embrace it right it's it's all gonna be out there so you might as well give it a big hug the ugly the smelly and the pretty and see what you can do with it yeah absolutely and I would say you know what though it's all it, it, again it does come back so some people say the corporate EI you know it's a little bit of a trick because people it's hard to have EI with a company where there's not a person on the other side of it and it's like that's it, more of that's more of the myth and the PR and things like that around the company, which are critical and important. But for instance, when I get guests that come, that that reach out and say they had an issue or a concern, um, usually the initial email right is pretty negative. When I personally respond, it changes the dialogue right there. And all of a sudden, when somebody's dealing with a person, you know, so when I when I go out and somebody says, you know what, Vail uh, Resorts is this, or the company is that, I always say, well, no, talk to me. Say, Rob, you're this, or Rob, you're that, because all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, well, I guess, you know, actually, you seem like a nice enough guy, <laughs> or, you know, now you're having a conversation, right? Yes. It's very easy to kind of just shoot at a faceless, nameless, you know, kind of bland corporation, but when you actually work with the people that are there, yeah, that's where we have to show up, right? Our people have to show up in the right way interpersonally with whoever we connect with. You've done a great job with that. You really have. So I appreciate it. Um, you're on Twitter under uh, Ricky's Ridge, and you're very public. You used to be a little more public. I think you've lost a little of the excitement yeah. about Twitter and all that. But that's okay. You're still there. You engage. I'm, yeah, I'm impressed. Um, all right, so listen, this has been fantastic. i got a series of rapid-fire questions that I want to throw at you. Yes, Kiki, you got some for us. Yes, we do have an audience question for Rob, if you want to do that now or after your rapid fire. Let's get it in now. Let's okay. Get it. We, okay. All right. We have from Nathan Simmons. He said, talking about innovation and experience to levy towards coming up with better ways to do what you do, What would you say that mastery of your subject matter is a better thing to strive for as it is a better predictor of coming up with innovative ideas that are truly groundbreaking? Yes. No, definitely. I think that, you know, I think that, uh, and I do think this is one of the areas where I think people coming out of school, younger folks sometimes, uh, they have big ideas, but they actually haven't mastered, right? Uh, you know, they don't, they don't know through and through a particular topic or subject matter. Uh, I think a lot of times people say, you know what, I don't want to work for a company. I want to just immediately start my own company. And they, they look at the Mark Zuckerbergs, they look at the Steve Jobs, and you know the pages and they, they're like oh yeah see they did it but that you know in the end of the day that that is so rare right it is so unique and unusual for that to happen that actually building the time to understand a company and understand how it works and learning right from all by the way when you're doing a startup typically you haven't even met a lot of people you work for a company you get to meet a lot more people get their insights learn how they think so to, I, I think it's critical I mean I, I just think it's a little bit of a dream, right, to think that you can, you know, without any experience, come up with an idea and have it just, you know, be successful. It's, it's a little like winning the lottery. It can happen. But I think there's, now, 
But as we said, that doesn't mean stay forever doing the exact same thing, building mastery. You've got to feel at some point, and you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, right, talks about in, I think it's the book Blink, um, you know, I think that, you know, there's like a 10,000 hours or whatever it was. Outliers. Outliers. Outliers, right, that it's like, hey, you know, that that's what it takes to master something. And and I think there's some there's some logic to that, right? And I think that's something that, you know, it's it's a number of years that you've got to put in first before you can really be the change agent. Yeah. And if I could add to that, it's the number of years and Angela Duckworth talks about this in great, amazing right. lady. Absolutely. It's not, yeah, it's not just the number of years, it's the deliberate she uses a different word, but I use it's the deliberate learning. I think she calls it uh, something practice where yeah. you actually focus on acquiring new knowledge in a very specific way to build on what you've learned, right? And if I you can't, I, yes. I totally agree. I totally agree, and I would say you're, the word deliberate, I think, is a great word because I, I think if you're not, if it's not just going to happen, you know, like by osmosis. It's like no. you've got to go out there and, and say, no, I'm making a conscious decision to constantly take, I'm going to be a learner, right? I am going to take in new information, and actually, I'm going to look for new information. Yes. And in fact, if you take that approach, when yes. you do something that doesn't work out, when you have something that, quote, we call fail forward, if you got a failure, well, the truth is, is that all of a sudden, instead of feeling bad about it, you say to yourself, oh, wow, this was an amazing learning opportunity. And because I was a deliberate learner and I wanted to learn, I succeeded. Yep. Right? I succeeded because I took learnings away from this, even if the outcome wasn't what I wanted. So it sounds like you're a Carol Dweck big fan as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, love Carl Dweck. What you're talking about is, is mastery orientation. So that's awesome. Awesome. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, so rapid fire, man. You ready? Yeah, ready. All right, here we go. What won't you tolerate in your employees that other companies do? Politics. So just will not tolerate politics. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to hold you to that because I don't play politics well at all, and it always gets me in trouble, so I'm going to remember that. Um, what's the one thing you would change about the world today if you could snap your fingers and make it happen? I think right now I would change that. Uh, I, I would like people to agree on what's factual and what's not. I think that right now the Internet uh, at, you know, and cable news and everything else has broadened so much, right, that there is not, and, and, and no, there are no authorities of facts anymore. And I think people thought originally it was a great idea uh, because now everybody could learn everything. But now I think, right, we've slid backwards where everybody just believes what they want and there is no, like, you know, kind of neutral assessment of, no, what, what is really going on. A, so trust, I think, a trustworthy authority. A trustworthy yes. authority. I yes. agree with you. It's scary. Super scary. Yeah. I like that. Um, who's the person who influences the who's the person influences you the most in biz today? Yeah, I you know I think it's uh, it's I've actually been uh, probably most recently right really uh, influenced by Brené Brown, um, who you know you know did you know has talked about vulnerability um, and how you use vulnerability. Um, uh, you know she gave an incredible uh, one of the best TED talks I think you know, on the topic a number of years ago. Um, and I think her work, you know, what we're trying to do here is because we're so emotional of a company and so passion-driven, right, how do we incorporate vulnerability and at the same time be uh, a, a high-performing stock, right? And those two things most people think of as completely in, in conflict. And I think we're trying to – so being – and I, what I love about her is it's not vulnerability meaning, well – everybody just sits around and, you know, and cries or is vulnerable or whatever. It's like, no, it's a, it's a, no, how do you let in that feedback? How do you share a little bit more of yourself, but also keep driving for success? Wow. And what's her name again? Brene Brown. Brene Brown. I'm going to check that out. That, that's powerful. The idea of vulnerability, the amount of courage and, and confidence it takes to be vulnerable, especially today is a big deal. That's a tall order. I, I've never heard of her. I'm going to go check her out. Thank you. Um, who was the person that influenced you most when you started in biz after Wharton? Um, it was, there was a guy who worked, at, uh, who worked at the firm that I worked at, Apollo, actually worked with me at Drexel, the investment bank also, um, Mark, who, uh, you know, he was, he was a couple of years ahead of me. He was a super bright guy, but more than that, 
he was always willing to challenge, right? He just was never satisfied. I, by the way, that was true with me too. So it was like constantly pushing, constantly driving. Uh, and, you know, honestly, there were a lot of times where it was incredibly annoying and I was, you know, kind of fed up with it. But I realized, yeah, I realize now when I look back that uh, that, that really set me up, I think, even to think about moving or think about going to new learning opportunities. I mean, he just had like, you know, was never satisfied with the first answer. Always wanted four other possibilities. Um, he came up, either he had some incredible innovations when we were working together. He also had some incredibly stupid ideas. Uh, and I learned a little bit that, that, yeah, it was like, okay, it is okay to push for new ideas, some of which are going to be stupid, and some people will think they're stupid. And he kind of would always be like, okay, well, maybe this is stupid, but, you know, stay with me for a little bit. Talk about it. And I think that that really colored how I am as a leader today. That's awesome. Kiki, well, she's just sitting there, oh, poor girl, I do it to her every day. I, I, and it, when you said I just, it drives me insane, I, I'm thinking she's like, Keenan. I know she gets afraid when she sees my number come up on her phone. I can see it. She looks like, ah, God damn, what's he want? What's he want? He's got to give me a hard time about something, right? Yes, yes. All right, what skis do you ski on? Yeah, right. uh, what skis do you ski on? Uh, I ski on uh, Soul 7s. Oh, all right. The black and yellow ones? Yeah, black and yellow right. ones. Or, super, or, you know, if it's a powder day, Super 7s. All right, all right. And uh, finally, as a successful CEO, what advice can you give to our listeners on being successful in the 21st century and what is most important? Yeah, I think, and we've obviously been talking about it, I think, the, for the whole hour, but I, I think agility. So we talk about, you know, uh, agility in every, in every way. And I would say, right, it's, it actually has a great corollary to skiing, right? It's like you're skiing down terrain. The terrain is constantly changing. Uh, you know, the terrain never stays the same because, right, it's, it's warm, it's cold, it's, it's new powder, it's icy, it's, right, there's, and so when you're on your skis, right, you've got to have an ability to constantly shift with wherever you are, um, and, and that's how you get a mastery of it, uh, and it's a mastery of the ability to ski, not of one particular run, because that run changes every day, and so to me, that's, when you think about leadership, it's no agility, you know, and I, I think we talk about that here all the time when we're assessing talent. It's like who shows that agility because the person who's got that agility, just like falling down on the mountain, I fall, everybody falls. Look, that's, if, if it doesn't matter to you, then yeah, you're, you know, if, it, if that makes you nervous and scared and you're not going to get back up again, yeah, then you're not the, the right leader to drive success. If you're the kind of person that can, you know, have setbacks and still keep going forward, yeah, then, then that's usually going to be the right person to make the most impact on your team. Awesome. That was fantastic. Great, great final answer. So, I, mean, I really appreciate it. So, you know, now that I've switched, I think this fits so well within your culture. we got to figure out how we get in the hands of at least all your corporate people, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I think that's we do. Great. Okay, yeah, you we'll like talk that? about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, is there anything you want to send people home with? Any last words? Yeah, go skiing. The snow is great. I know. <laughs> Get back up on the hill. I, you know, honestly, it's been it's a it is. I mean, I would say it, this is one of the greatest times. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I don't care where you ski, whether you ski at our resorts. Get outside, right? I guess I'll say it that way. Get outside. I think that's you know, it's been a life changer for me. I know it's been a life changer for you. It's like get into the outdoors, you know. So with all the technology and everything that's out there today, uh, you know, uh, don't lose. It's one of the best ways to ground. Uh, it's one of the best places to think. Uh, yeah, so uh, nature. Good call. I'm, with you. I'm skiing this weekend. Are you going to be up there this weekend? I may be up there on Sunday, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, if we are, let's try to figure out how to make a few turns. Um, it's going to be awfully warm, but yeah, let's make a few turns. That would be fun. <laughs> All right, so hey everybody, thank you very much again, Rob Cat, CEO of Vail Resorts. He's killed it. This was a fantastic talk, leaders. This will be recorded or has been recorded, so you'll be able to watch it. Say hi to YouTube. It's going up on YouTube within a couple hours. It'll be dope that way. And our next guest, Rob, I think you know our next guest. Who's our next guest, Kira? Uh, Dr. Tasha. We have Dr. Tasha. She's the best-selling author of Bankable Leadership. And yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got a new book coming out, um, Insight, Why We're Not as Self-Aware as We Think and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and Life. 
And that is uh, Thursday, May 4th at 12 p.m. And I'm dropping the link to RSVP right now. Boom, look at that. We're just going to carry this whole self-awareness, self-improvement to another episode. So on that, Rob, again, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Really appreciate oh, thanks it. Thanks a lot, Keenan. This was awesome. I really appreciate you having me on. I love what you're doing. I love the book. Uh, yeah, you know, we're, it's, it's a journey. We're on it together. Amen, baby. Amen. All right, everybody, listen. It's your world. If you want to make it happen, make it happen. Bet on yourself because if you won't bet on you, why should I bet on you? Until next time, y'all, peace. I'm out.